Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Psalm 110. You can find that on page 509 in the chair Bibles around you. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you and we exalt you above all. You are seated on the throne of heaven, the highest throne imaginable. And so, Lord Christ, we we come with reverence and we come to hear you speak. So help us by your Holy Spirit to understand your word. And we ask also that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us great confidence that we have you as our high priest and sovereign king. So I ask, Lord, that uh, you would uh, encourage us and bless us uh, and convict us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 2022 will be the 30-year anniversary of, believe it or not, the smartphone. Now, not, not the cell phone, but the smartphone, believe it or not. Uh, The first smartphone was created in 1992 by IBM, and it was called the Simon Personal Communicator. The Simon Personal Communicator, a very catchy name, right? Up there with, like, iPhone. Uh, It it actually had a touchscreen, and you could send and receive emails and faxes, and you could use a calendar, calculator, and an address book. Uh, Unfortunately, this phone... Uh, only had a one-hour battery life, and it weighed uh, 18 ounces, so a little over a pound, which is twice the weight of your average cell phone today. It wasn't until 2007 that uh, when, when Apple invented the iPhone that smartphones really took off. And it's just been unimaginable uh, what you can do now with a smartphone. It's now the combination of a ton of things. It's not just a phone, right? <laughs> It's a, it's a computer and a camera, and so, so you can do these live video chats. And a smartphone isn't just a phone and a computer and a camera, right? It's also a newspaper, a dictionary, cookbook, video game console, TV remote, scanner, notebook, tape measure, calculator, wallet with debit, credit, and gift cards, Alarm clock, stopwatch, MP3 player, player, video player, mirror, GPS, fitness tracker, compass, and flashlight. And for some people, you could even say that it's, it's their security blanket. 
The smartphone has really been an unimaginable invention uh, because it's, it's, it's been this combination of so many pieces of technology. It's been a, it's been a great help to, to many of us in our, in our everyday problems. Jesus is kind of like a smartphone because he's, he's the unimaginable combination. He's the perfect synthesis of everything that we need. Under the Old Covenant, under the Law of Moses, there were many unsolvable problems with sin and separation from, uh, with, with, with God. There were unsolvable problems with unrighteous kings, unfaithful priests, lying prophets, and unjust judges. And when these leaders were actually good, they'd eventually die. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and the temples, they all had limitations. And, and all the sacrifices, year after year, couldn't forgive a single sin. But then the unimaginable happened. God fixed these unsolvable problems. And he did it with Christmas. So Christmas, not, not Santa Claus and elves and Christmas trees and, 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 and presents and all that, but, but, but the real Christmas, the first Christmas, the, the, the Christmas when, 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 when Jesus came as God to then put on flesh and become man as well. That was God's unimaginable solution to solve our unsolvable problem of sin and separation from him. Jesus is like a, a he's like a smartphone in that he's he's this unthinkable synthesis of everything that we needed that the old covenant had fragmented and ultimately couldn't provide for us. Jesus is the king and the priest and the temple and the sacrificial lamb and the prophet. And because he's both God and man, he will never die again. And he will continue as our king, as one of us, as our king and our priest and our prophet and temple and lamb and everything else that we need him to be for our salvation and our reconciliation with God. Jesus in the new covenant is the unimaginable solution to all the problems that the old covenant couldn't solve. Today we're going to look at Psalm 110 and see how Jesus is the combination of our sovereign king, our everlasting high priest, and the coming judge of the world. And I pray that as we do so, that, that it will fill your hearts with great confidence and joy in him. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 3 and see how Jesus came to be our sovereign king. We'll start with... Verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This first verse of Psalm 110 is the most quoted or alluded to Old Testament verse in the New, in the New Testament. So the most quoted and, and alluded to. Jesus quotes it in the Gospels. Luke quotes it in Acts. Uh, it's, it's also quoted by the author of Hebrews. 
It's clearly alluded to by the apostles Peter and Paul in their writings as well. And then when you step outside of Scripture, uh, you can uh, see that it's alluded to in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, or Westminster Standards, and then just many, many other creeds and confessions across denominational lines. So this verse is one of the most significant prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And so I just can't stress enough the importance of understanding it. Thankfully, to help us understand this verse, we, uh, we have Jesus and the apostles interpreting it for us. So you just can't get much better than that. So let's first see what Jesus has to say. So please turn uh, to Matthew chapter 22 in your Bibles. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. In the context there, uh, Jesus, he's, he's uh, being grilled by the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're, they're asking him questions and they're trying to stump him and, and trap him in his words, but they fail. Uh, they, uh, he, he astounds them with his answers. And then in verses 41 through 46, Jesus turns the tables on the Pharisees and he asks them a question. He says this in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus' logic here is on fire. He knows that the Pharisees don't believe that he's the Christ, the the, the anointed one that Psalm 110 is, is prophesying about. And so he begins to expose the holes in how they're thinking about this prophecy. They know that the Messiah will be the son of David. But Jesus shows that Psalm 110 makes it clear that David calls the Messiah his Lord. So if you look closely at that phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, you can begin to see what Jesus is talking about. There are three different people mentioned in that short phrase. The first Lord is actually Yahweh. In Psalm 110, in your your English translations, you'll see that the word Lord is in all capitals, indicating that it's the divine name Yahweh. So it's a completely different word than the second Lord. The second person mentioned is David in the pronoun my. And then, uh, so, so David, he's prophesying by the Spirit about what Yahweh is saying to his Lord. So then, the second Lord refers to the Christ. And the word used there in Hebrew is is Adoni or Adonai, meaning master or Lord. So, so Yahweh says to David's Lord. That's kind of how you could you could summarize it. So Jesus asked the Pharisees this. He, he asked them, how could the Christ be both David's son and David's Lord? The Pharisees didn't have an answer. They didn't have a clue. Because to them, they were just thinking in terms of how, well, 
You know, a father never calls his son Lord or Master. So they were stumped. Jesus wanted people to see that the Christ wasn't merely David's descendant, but rather he is so superior to David that David is his servant. This Christ was unimaginably greater than they had expected. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter also preaches on this verse. And he he gives more insight into the significance of this verse than than what Jesus gives in the Gospels. In summary, uh, Peter says there that, that this verse, it's a prophecy of the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Uh, as Lord and Christ, to reign at the right hand of God. So because, because of Jesus' humble obedience to the Father, obedience to the point of death on a cross, the Father therefore rewarded him and exalted him to the highest honor, to get, giving him the name that's above all names and, and, and giving him an equal reign with him on the throne of heaven. So right now, Jesus, he's, he's not just up there doing nothing and waiting to just return or, or, or just there at the door to greet the saints that are coming into his presence. He's, he's actively reigning over the universe. And even though, even though the world is so dark right now, and even though there are so many of his enemies, God the Father is subjecting his enemies under the reign of Christ. We also see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 with the Apostle Paul. Uh, there, the Apostle Paul talks about all the enemies being subjected under Christ and that the last enemy to be just put under the feet of Christ is death itself. And then nothing will ever be able to threaten his people ever again. May death die soon. So Jesus came to be the sovereign and perfect king that we always needed. But he came not only as a king, but also to be our everlasting high priest. So let's turn back again to Psalm 110 and let's now consider verse 4. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So as you can see, verse 4 is the second oracle in this uh, in this psalm. And this one is it's it's uh, prefaced with a ve- with very strong language. What the Lord is about to say is an oath to the Christ. He's swearing that he will make this be and he will not change his mind about it. Now, obviously, everything that God says is serious and it's true. But when God gives an oath, it's, it's not to bind himself to what he's deciding about and uh, binding himself from changing his mind, but, but rather he wants us to be unshakably confident that he's sovereign and he's faithful and nothing can stand in his way from accomplishing his purpose. He will not change his mind because of any influence outside of himself. So Satan can't stop him. We can't stop him. 
His enemies can't stop him. And he will not change his decision based on any influence from within himself. He will not change his mind. So God has given us unshakable confidence that what he's about to promise here will certainly come to be. So so what is he swearing to do here? Yahweh swears that he will establish the Christ, David's Lord, as a priest forever, as one like Melchizedek. He will give us not only a sovereign king who will conquer all of his and our enemies, but he will also give us a priest who will live and serve and intercede for us forever. So let's dive deeper into verse 4 here, and let's, let's look at this strange person, Melchizedek. And we're also going to see how Jesus is a high priest like him, and we'll also consider why, why we need Jesus as our high priest and none other. So first, Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek is rarely mentioned in Scripture, uh, just twice in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, he's mentioned only eight times, and it's all in the book of Hebrews. So that's it. That's all, that's all that we have. Um, that's all. So, so, so we don't know a lot about him. But, but what Scripture has given us is sufficient for what we need to know. Genesis 14 uh, tells us the, the brief story about Melchizedek. And it just seems like he just shows up out of the blue uh, to bless Abram, who would then become Abraham. Genesis 14, 18 18 through 20 says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So at first glance, it's, it's really kind of hard to understand why God would make an oath that Jesus' priesthood would be like this Melchizedek and, and this, these short few little sentences that we have about him. So who is he? And why is he so significant? To answer, answer this, thankfully, uh, once again, we have inspired help uh, from uh, from uh, from the Bible itself, and so uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter seven, uh, gives us a, a, a lot of information here about who he is and what his significance is. So, uh, so please turn in your Bibles there to, cha- to Hebrews chapter seven, towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, we'll be spending a little bit of time there, so I think it'll be worth turning there. There have been a, a number of various interpretations about who Mel- Melchizedek uh, was. Some Jewish scholars back in the day, and, and even Martin Luther, believed that, uh, that Melchizedek was Noah's son, Shem. Shem. And, and they believed that because uh, Shem, uh, is, uh, he lived longer, uh, he, out, he outlived Abraham, actually. He lived so long that, uh, that uh, he lived during the time of Abraham. But this interpretation really is fairly baseless beyond uh, that, uh, and, and, and it would even contradict some of what Hebrews 7 uh, talks about. Some have also interpreted Melchizedek to be uh, an, an angel, or even the Holy Spirit, or probably more popularly, uh, a, a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus. 
But I, I don't think that those interpretations hold water either. Hebrews 7 says that he was a man. And it would be really strange for God to make an oath for Jesus to be a priest like Jesus. And it would be really strange for Jesus to have been this, this active priest king in Salem during Abraham's life and, and, and only having this one interaction with him. Uh, the more you think about it, the weirder it gets. So who is this guy and, and how is Jesus like him? So let's, let's, uh, let's look at Hebrews 7 here, uh, starting in verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So we first see that Melchizedek is a priest and a king. He holds dual office. Now that's, that's really unique. And you couldn't do that in the Old Covenant. And remember, Melchizedek and Abraham, they precede the Old Covenant. They precede Moses. That's really important. So in the Old Covenant, under Moses, you couldn't have a priest and a king. And remember, King Saul, he lost his kingship because he made sacrifices like a priest. So Melchizedek is unique. He's different. Next we see that his name means king of righteousness and that he serves as the king of Salem, which means peace. So he's a priest who's also the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now that sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now this, this is the verse that makes people think that Melchizedek is actually some kind of pre-incarnate Jesus. But I, I don't think we need to go that far. Uh, the author of Hebrews is saying that as you're reading Genesis, the book of Genesis, as you're reading it, Mel Mel Melchizedek, he just pops up, pops up out of nowhere in a book that's full of genealogies. I mean, everybody's, everybody's got a father and a son, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and, uh, but not so with Melchizedek. So as you read Genesis, it's like he has no father or mother. His birth isn't recorded and neither is his death. So it's as if his priesthood has continued. So I think that's why the author of Hebrews is saying that he resembles the Son of God. So resembles the Son of God, not is the Son of God. So with this language of comparison, I think it's safe for us to say that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. A type of of Christ, someone pointing toward Jesus and in how he would be a priest king who is the king of righteousness and king of peace and who has always existed and whose priesthood continues forever. So this is how Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
Jesus would not be a priest in the order of Levi because the Old Testament priesthood was being done away with. And Jesus, he was of the line of Judah anyways. Let's look down now to verse 11 of Hebrews 7. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So the Levitical priesthood could not provide the perfection that the law required for us. It couldn't do it. So we needed a better priest and a better covenant and a different order. We needed a priest king who would be righteous and bring the peace between us and God that we couldn't bring about. And we needed this priest to live forever. That's why Melchizedek is so important. Because he reminds us and he points us to what we need most. We need a better priest and a better covenant. Look down now to verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So why is this so significant for us? Why do you and I need Jesus as our high priest? Verse 25 begins to answer this for us. It's one of the sweetest verses in this chapter. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, that's just so rich. Let me just read it again. This is so important. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, for all time, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We need Jesus as our high priest because only he can completely save us for all time. He doesn't just partially save us and then and then and then we need to supplement his salvation with with something else like like good works in order to be completely saved forever no he fully saves us forever and we need jesus as our high priest because he always lives to intercede for us he will never die he will never stop representing us before god and praying for us have you, have you thought about and, and comforted your soul with the truth that Jesus is praying for you? He prays for you like, like when he prayed for Peter. When Satan wanted to sift him like wheat and destroy his faith, Jesus told Peter this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. How comforting and assuring it is to know that when we draw near to God by faith in Jesus, that then Jesus himself prays for us that our faith may not fail. 
That Satan may not have his way with us and destroy our faith, but that we will persevere to the end. Let me ask a, a, a personal question now uh, to, to help us check our hearts to see if we're living consistently with what we believe. Who or what is your functional high priest? Who or what is your functional high priest? Who or what do you rely on to bring you close to God? To even represent you before God that you feel like because you have this or because you have this person that, that they make you look good before God? Or, 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 or who do you rely on to, to pray for you? Do you use worship music as your high priest? Do you functionally believe that it brings you into God's presence? I'm afraid this is functionally very popular today. Uh, worship music, is, it's, it's obviously very good, and it, it, can, it can stir us to worship God, and, and, and worshiping God is a means by which we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But do you treat worship music and, and even worshiping as if it's your high priest, ushering you close to God, making you presentable to God? Worship music is, is, is great for worship, but it makes a terrible high priest. It's not perfectly righteous. You're not perfectly righteous. And it's temporal. At some point, you stop hearing the music. At some point, you stop singing. We need Christ to ever intercede for us every second of the day. When we're worshiping God, we still need a high priest. And when we're sinning, yeah, we definitely need a high priest. So when you're at your best, you need a high priest like Jesus. And when you're at your worst, you need Jesus to be ever interceding for you. Now, you know, music isn't the only common functional high priest today. Warm, Christmassy feelings are a bad high priest. Special lighting and candles and flowers and decorations, as beautiful as they are, they're a bad high priest. Nature, I mean, I, 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 love, I love climbing mountains. I love hiking out in the woods. I, I love going to the ocean. I love stargazing. And all of creation, it just testifies to the greatness of God. But it makes a terrible high priest. What about family? Do you functionally treat family members as your high priest? Now, maybe you're a child here, and, and, and maybe, maybe you're treating your, your father or your mother as your high priest to, to represent you before God. But, but that won't do. Your parents, yeah, they can pray for you, but you need Jesus to pray for you. You, you need Jesus to be the perfectly holy person to bring you into the holy presence of God. And that can't be your parents. We can use so many good things as our functional high priest. Knowing our Bible really well. Believing the Westminster standards. Being baptized. Taking a trip to Israel. Going to a Christian conference. Taking communion. 
These are all good things, obviously. But they all fail as high priests. Now, your, your pastors, we are, not, we are not your high priests. And we love praying for you, but our prayers don't hold a candle to the prayers of Jesus Christ for you. I'm so thankful that, I mean, as interesting as it would be, I'm so thankful that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore or the elements of the tabernacle or, or, or the temples of the Old, Old Testament. I'm thankful that we don't have the manger that Jesus was laid in or the cross that he died on. Because if we did, people would use them as their functional high priest. They, they, would, they would try to see them. They would try to touch them. They would try to kiss them, try to get close to them in order to draw near to God. But those things cannot draw you near to God Almighty. Only Jesus. So check your heart. What, what are your functional high priests? And then just see how sufficient and perfect Jesus is as your high priest and trust and rest in his intercession for you. Let all the other noise just be quieted and just focus just solely on Jesus as your high priest. So we need Jesus as our high priest because nothing else will do. And we also need Jesus to be our king, to be this priest king, to be, have, have both of his offices united into one person. So let's think uh, for a moment about the significance of, of Jesus being both our high priest and our king. So we need a king priest because we used to be the enemies of the king. And so we needed a mediator to bring peace between us and the king that we've offended. And if the king is the priest, then there's absolutely no doubt that if you are accepted and represented by the high priest, then there's absolutely no doubt that you will be accepted by the king and you will not be shattered by him as his enemy. We also need a priest king because when Jesus prays for us, he, he prays as one with kingly authority and power. Not, not as one who's just merely trying to persuade God the Father. Revelation 3.21 gives us another amazing benefit of having Christ as our priest king. And in, in it, this is Jesus uh, speaking. Jesus says there, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This promise is beyond imagination. Because Jesus is king, he's seated at the right hand of God. And because he's our high priest, we are seated with him at his right hand. At the right hand of God. This is amazing. So, in Psalm 110... Verse 1, Yahweh's invitation for the Christ to sit at his right hand is then by extension his invitation to us to sit with him on his throne.
There is no greater honor. There's also no greater shame than to be his footstool. To be his enemy and to be subjected to his wrath. Jesus is our priest and king, but one day he will come back as the judge of the world. And not just a judge, but a warrior who will bring about the punishment that he determines against his enemies. Let's turn one last time back to Psalm 110. This time we'll read verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. The first time Jesus came, he came as a, as a humble baby offering mercy. But one day he will return to judge the world. And not only to judge, but to be the warrior who shatters his enemies among all the nations, leaving none of them alive. We see the same imagery in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns on a white horse uh, with eyes flaming like fire. Out of his mouth will come a sword to strike down the nations. And it says that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The land will be filled with corpses. And it says that the birds of the air will feast on the dead bodies of the slain. This is the end of God's enemies. This is what it means to be the footstool. There is no greater shame. The warrior judge will come soon, and it could be any day. But until then, the king of kings offers mercy to all without price. And he offers himself, his very self, to be our mediator before our holy God. You will either sit with Christ on the throne of the Father in all glory, or you'll be the footstool in all shame. So let's, let's, let's put our faith in Christ. Let's, let's put our full confidence that our high priest Jesus will be able to save us to the uttermost, to save us completely for all time. Jesus is the unimaginably perfect solution to our unsolvable problems. He's the best combination of everything that we need Him to be for our salvation, to bring us near to God. So let us worship Him with our whole lives. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we worship You today. We exalt You. We thank You for being the perfect high priest that none of us could ever be. We praise you for the mystery of, of, of you becoming man, one of us. And we ask, Lord, that our lives would be changed by this reality, that, that, that our hearts would turn away from, from, from any other king, from any other uh, functional high priest, that we would rest solely on you alone. 
So we thank you, Lord Jesus. And we are in awe of the honor that we will one day fully come to realize when we get the privilege of sitting with you on your throne and reigning with you forever. Lord, we ask that you would help us in the meantime to be your royal priesthood, to be your representatives here on earth, and to achieve your mission of subjecting all of Christ's enemies underneath him and winning many over to his kindness and mercy. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.